All right. Our title, the title today is Wherefore I Pour Myself and Repent in Dust and Ashes. And that, of course, is something that you've heard us, heard me speak about many times as we went through the book of Job because we're always referring ahead to this chapter, this, this last chapter of the book of Job. God has put Job through a lot. And, and if we just stop and think about what Job has gone through and what others on our prayer list have gone through, are going through today, it should give us a little more depth of wisdom, maturity, and gratitude for what God is doing in our lives. When we come to God, we don't want to come accusing Him as Job. I mean, we all do. We all do. But we want to ask Him to bring us to the point that we can do as He says in Psalms 107. Come to Him with a Spirit of gratitude. We've got a lot to be grateful for. So come to God with a spirit of gratitude. Bring Him the sacrifice of thanksgiving. And be grateful for His wonderful works to the children of men. Psalm 107, verses 20, uh, 21, 20, 20, 21, 22. So let's, let's, let's do that. Let's read our verses now. We'll get into our study. Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know you can do everything, and that no thought can be withholding from you. Who is he that hides counsel without knowledge? Speaking of himself, of course. Therefore I uttered that I understood not, things too wonderful for me, which I knew not. Here I beseech you, and I will speak. I will demand of you, and declare you unto me, as we'll see that word demand is just not... A very good translation for the spirit that Job was in at this time. I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, and now my eye sees you. Wherefore I abhor myself, and repent in dust and ashes. And it was so, that after the Lord had spoken these words to Job, the Lord said to Eliphaz the Temanite, My wrath is kindled against you, and against your two friends. For you've not spoken of me the thing that is right, as my servant Job has. Therefore, take unto you now seven bullets and seven rams, and do, and go to my servant Job, and offer up for yourselves a burnt offering, and my servant Job will pray for you. For him will I accept, lest I deal with you after your folly, in that you have not spoken of me the thing which is right, like my servant Job. Wow, what a position God has placed Job in all of a sudden. Because Job certainly hadn't been speaking what was right concerning God for very long. I mean, it just happened. And now he's in a position where God is saying, Job is speaking what's right, and you guys aren't. Well, there's a lesson in that. There's something God is showing us in what, what he's saying here. God has revealed to Job that the old Job is God's avowed enemy, who is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. Here's Job's own words before he began to speak what was right concerning God. This is Job 16.9. He 
Speaking of God, tears me in his wrath, who hates me. He gnashes upon me with his teeth. Mine enemy sharpens his eyes upon me. Well, those words are true. But God has to bring us to where we don't see him as our enemy. And we don't accuse him of any injustices, which is what Job was doing there. Romans 8, 7, the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it's not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. It's not subject to God's ways, neither indeed can be. My ways are as far above your ways as the heavens are above the earth. And so when we are caught in the midst of God's ways that we don't understand, we contend with, reprove, and condemn him. Job gave himself all the credit for his own good works. Job 29 was is the uh, I, me, my chapter for Job. Here's what he says, just a few verses there. When I went out to the gate through the city, when I prepared my seat, seat in the street, the young men saw me and hid themselves. The aged arose and stood up. The princes refrained from talking and laid their hand on their mouth. The nobles held their peace, and their tongue cleaved to the roof of their mouth. And when the ear heard me, it blessed me. When the eye saw me, it gave me witness. It gave witness to me, because I, del- I delivered the poor that cried, and the fatherless and him that had none to help him. Wow. Job 27, verse 5, just a little more of Job's appreciation for who he was in the flesh. Speaking to his friends, he says, God forbid that I should justify you. Till I die, I will not remove my integrity from me. And in type and shadow, that's exactly what it took. Job condemned God for tormenting him while considering himself to be without transgression. Now this is is chapter 33 and 34 we'll be reading out of, and it's Elihu. But Elihu is speaking for God. God doesn't call Elihu to come and repent, but he does his other three friends. Elihu says that Job had said, I am clean without transgression. I'm innocent. Neither is there any iniquity in me. Behold, he finds occasion against me and counts me for his enemy. That was what Elihu got out of what Job said. That's exactly what we are to get out of what Job said. Job thought he was without transgression. He said it. Job 34, verse 5, For Job has said, I am righteous, and God has taken away my judgment. Should I lie against my right? My right. My wound is incurable without transgression. Without transgression. Oh, my, my, my. Because Job typifies God's first fruit elect. That's you and me. You know, we are Job. Job is us. God is judging Job first before and ahead of his friends. He's bringing Job to repentance by making Job aware of his insidious sin of self-righteousness and by revealing himself to Job. As we saw in chapter 40, Job was guilty of contending with, reproving and condemning his Lord and trying to justify himself at God's expense. So God answered Job. Then answered the Lord out of the whirlwind and said, Gird up your loins now like a man, and I'll demand of you and declare you unto me. Same same phrase there, I'll demand of you. I'll ask you, but the, 
when God says it, it's got the sense of force to it that it doesn't have when Job says it. Will you disannul my judgment? Will you condemn me that you may be made that you may be righteous? To give Job a proper perspective as to just how important he was of himself. God had earlier asked uh, Job, this is, this is to give him a proper perspective. The Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is he that take, darkens counsel without knowledge? Gird up your loins like a man, for I will demand of you and answer you me. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the world? Declare if you have understanding. God goes on for four chapters, showing Job, Job just how ignorant Job really is. When God has had his say with Job, an Old Testament type of God's first fruit elect, this is Job's response. I know you can do anything, that no thought can be withholding from you. The Lord has demonstrated just how powerless Job and you and I are against the powers of Behemoth and Leviathan. Yet he tells us that he's the master of both of these great creatures. Of Behemoth, he says, his bones are strong pieces of brass. His bones are like iron bars. He is the chief of the ways of God. He made him, he that made him can make his sword approach to him. And of Leviathan, he says, none is so fierce as that dare stir him up. Who then is able to stand before me? Who has prevented me? Who has preceded me that I should repay him? Whatsoever, including Leviathan, is under the whole heaven, is mine. God created Satan to be an adversary. His hand formed the crooked serpent, is what he tells us in Job. So yes, our Lord can do anything, and here is why no thought can be withholding from him. This is Psalms 10 and Proverbs 16. 10 verse 17. Lord, you have heard the desire of the humble. You will prepare their heart. You will cause your ear to hear. God prepares our heart. He causes his ear to hear us when he decides it's time. Proverbs 16.1. The preparations of the heart in man, like we just read there, you will prepare their heart. And the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. In Philippians 2.13, for it is God that works in you. Both to will, to prepare the heart, to do whatever, good or evil, and to do of his good pleasure. But, you know, the natural man says, God doesn't it's not God's good pleasure for evil to happen. Oh, doesn't the scripture say it pleased him to bruise him? I think it did, because God's plan has got to be done. And it pleases him to carry out his plan, which was in place before the world began. God prepares our hearts and causes us to will to do all that we do, good or evil. Indeed, no thought is withholding from God. Who is he that, Job 32, verse 3, Who is he that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore have I uttered that I understood not. Things too wonderful for me which I knew not. We all do. 
Job now has the spirit of King David. When he was confronted with his sin in the matter of Uriah the Hittite. Now this is not the King David of just moments before. David said unto Nathan. And this is right after saying, bring that man before me and I'll take care of this situation. How can anyone be so thoughtless as to take a man's one little sheep when he has so many of his own? David said to Nathan, after Nathan said, you're that man, King David. David says, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord also has put away your sin and you shall not die. Now that's just a type of God forgiving us for our self-righteousness. Job and King David are as different as day and night. And at the same time, they both have the same experience in being forced by God to come to see that sin was in within both men. Both men typify us. One is a perfect and upright man who, God, who loved God and hated evil and yet had had to be made to acknowledge that he had contended with, reproved, and condemned his own God and maker. The other was a bloody man, King David, who couldn't build the temple of God, and who was made by God to see that he himself was the very same merciless murderer he so despised in King Saul, who sought to slay King David, uh, before he was king, who had only done good to King Saul. David had never done anything to upset his master. He played the on, the, on his instrument for the king. And it soothed the king. And what does the king do? He takes his javelin and tries to put David, pin David to the wall with it. It, it just didn't make any sense. How, how could he do that to someone who had served him, who had taken out the king's enemies, Goliath, the Philistines, and done everything honorably. And yet the king wanted him dead. Uriah, too, had served King David in the very same way, with total loyalty. And what did King David do? He sought Uriah's life. Only David succeeded. He took it. And he did it all to cover up the fact that he had taken the man's wife to begin with. And then he was indignant. Now listen, this isn't talking down about David. This is talking down about our old man. This is talking about down about Mike Vinson in the flesh. And each of you in the flesh, your flesh, has this in it. And when we think, oh, gee, I could never do that. That's not in me to do that. Well, you just don't know who you are in the flesh. You don't know Adam. And you think you're not Adam. Because this is all Adam, whose very first son killed his second son. Right at the very beginning. And it all serves to demonstrate the depth of the truth in these verses. Ecclesiastes 9.2 All things come alike to all. There's one event to the righteous and to the wicked, to the good and to the clean and to the unclean, to him that sacrifices and to him that sacrifices not. As is the good, so is the sinner. And he that swears is he that fears an oath. And if you think that's just talking about 
death, then why does it say all comes to all? Why doesn't it say one comes to all? It does say that elsewhere, but it doesn't say it here. Because the point being made is that all men have the same judging experience of the old man having to be judged. The, Jeremiah 17.9 The heart is deceitful above all things. This isn't just some men's hearts. This is the heart of all men. And desperately wicked, who can know it? We don't think we're as wicked as we are in our flesh. We don't think we could stoop to the depths that some people have been caused to stoop to. The message is that all righteous men have been sinners who have been judged before becoming righteous men. And that all sinners will become righteous men who have been judged as sinners before they become righteous men. The message is that God is in the process of saving all who are in Adam in the same manner by which he, they came to be in Adam. In other words, by his will. 1 Corinthians 15.22 My opinion here is that as in Adam all die, so in Christ will all be made alive. Why is that my opinion? Because that's what it says. Job now confesses his own righteous condemnation, self-righteous condemnation of his creator and confesses, I knew not, I understood not. And well he should. The Lord had earlier asked Job where he was when God laid the foundations of the earth. At that time, Job, he told Job that Job had darkened by counsel, darkened counsel by words without knowledge. His questions to Job concerning Job's whereabouts at the time of the creation of the earth were made for the purpose of accentuating the fact that Job didn't exist at that time and therefore was not nearly as knowledgeable as he thought himself to be. Job 38, verses 2 through 7. Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Gird up your loins like a man, and I will demand of you and answer me. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Declare if you have understanding. Who has laid the foundations thereof, if you know? Who has stretched the line upon it? Whereupon are the foundations thereof fastened? Who laid the cornerstone thereof? When the morning stars sang together, and the sons of God shouted for joy. God is clearly telling Job that Job was not to be found when he laid the foundations of the earth. Yet many believe that because God mentions the sons of God in this verse, that that actually proves Job and I, Job and you and I, have preexisted. And we were all right there in the spirit when God laid the foundations of the earth. That doctrine makes God's question to Job look silly. Since the point God is making is that Job himself is totally insignificant. And was not even there when God laid the foundations of the earth. As we demonstrated in an earlier study, the sons of God refers to the spirit realm of angelic hosts who were created on the fifth day, the day before mankind. So while some men may not know what Job admits here, Job was well aware that the reason God asked him where he was at that time was to remind him that he did not even exist at the time. The unscriptural doctrine of circularity, which is nothing more than uh, a form of uh, transmigration of souls, actually teaches that Job could very well have said to God, Well, Lord, since you asked, I was right there at your right hand when you laid the foundations of the earth. Have you forgotten, Lord? But of course, Job knew better by now. 
than to be answering with any such foolishness. And he now confesses, Therefore I uttered that I understood not things too wonderful for me which I knew not. We are not as yet, according to Scripture, spirit beings. Not that which is spiritual is first. That's a principle that some very learned great men of God would do well to believe. For now, during this time, we're in these vessels of clay, according to spirit, we are mere beasts, created on the sixth day along with all the other beasts. That's why our number is 666. We are made of dust. We have the breath of life temporarily breathed into us. And it says that in Ecclesiastes 3:18 through 20. I said in my heart concerning the estate of the sons of man that God might manifest them, that they might see that they themselves are beasts. For that which befalls the sons of man, men befalls beasts. Every, even one thing befalls them. As the one dies, so dies the other. Yes, they all have one breath. So that man has no preeminence above a beast, for all is vanity. All go unto one place, all are of the dust, all turn to dust again. Now that's the condition we are presently in. There is one thing that man has that beasts do not, and that is that God is in the process of making men into his image, in the process. When we die, we're dead. We return to the dust from which we were taken. And without a resurrection, we're perished. That's the doctrine of Scripture as inspired by the Holy Spirit. Let's all let God be true and every man a liar. 1 Corinthians 15:18. Then, meaning if there's no resurrection, that's what he's talking about in verse 17. They also which are fallen asleep in Christ are perished. Now many in Babylon argue that since the people of Christ's time believed him to be John the Baptist or Elias or Jeremiah or one of the prophets, that that indicates that we are spirit instead of dust. Well, what people think is not what constitutes truth. And the account of Christ's question and the answer of his apostles certainly does not prove the immortality of the soul or the transmigration of souls. Now here are the verses that, that uh, inform us of that question Christ asked his, his disciples. Jesus, when Jesus came into the coast of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And they said, Some say you are John the Baptist, some Elias, others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. Now, the Jews of Christ, they didn't believe in the transmigration of souls. They, they knew what the scriptures taught, that the dead know not anything. What they thought was that Christ had come in the spirit and power of Elias, and that's what they were speaking about, or one of the prophets, not that he was actually transmigrated, the transmigrated soul of Elijah or of any of the other prophets. Here's what was prophesied concerning John the Baptist. Luke one seventeen, And he shall go before him in the power, spirit, and power of Elias, which is a Greek way of saying Elijah, to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, 
to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. So, it's the spirit and power that, of these different people that the people of Christ's day thought that he had come in. Job continues to plead with God. Verse 4, Here I beseech you, and I will speak. I will demand of you, and declare you to me. Now, Job's spirit and attitude have changed. He has owned up to his sins. He knew that he had contended with, reproved, and condemned God, and he had repented the thunderous voice of his creator out of a tornado. That's what a whirlwind is. This isn't just a little uh, dust devil we're talking about here. This is the God of the universe speaking out of a whirlwind. And, you know, we've, we've seen a lot of clips and, and heard the sound of a tornado. And I, I personally uh, never been in a tornado, but actually right here in this, this house, heard a rumble. It just sounded like, a, like, a, like so many people have described it, like a freight train coming. And I just stuck my head out the door just in time to see a wall of green debris coming toward the house. And I slammed the door just in time for it to hit the house and feel the whole house shake and see the roof of our porch just go straight up in the air. And then I, when, when the shaking was over, I, I looked out, the, opened the door and looked out to see what it, where the porch had gone to. And I looked up and I could see the roof of the porch straight up in the air. It looked like 100 feet high just waving in the air, and it came back down about 20 yards beyond the house. Believe me, that uh, kind of humbled me. Uh, it scared me to death. Didn't know what it was, and I, I guess it was just a wind shear. But uh, I can't imagine what it would be like to be in a, right in the, you know, caught up in a tornado. But that, that's what Job was dealing with here. This voice coming out of this this tornado speaking to him. And Job says to this voice, Here I beseech you, and I will demand of you and declare you unto me. Well, let's, let's look at this word demand. Because Job is not, not of that spirit anymore. The word is shalal in the, in the Hebrew. Sha'al, I should say. Not shalal, but sha'al. And it's a primitive root. And it means to inquire. By implication to request. By extension. And always watch out when you see that word extension. In uh, Strong's. To demand. Now. As we can see. From the way this word is used most often. And is most often translated. It simply means to inquire and to ask. It doesn't mean Job is demanding. Anything of God. Because he has learned his lesson. So I've got it here. It's, it's in the uh, Old Testament 169 times. And out of those 169 times, I've just put up the first five here to show you how, how the word is generally translated. It's in the past tense, asked 49 times. Ask, 41. Inquired, 15. Inquire, 7. Asketh, the old King James TH on the end, five times. Now, there are 31 different English translations for this one Hebrew word, sha'al. These first five account for 117 of the 
total 169 entries, and they serve to demonstrate that this word has nothing to do with the word demand as it's understood in today's English, at least not always. Might have been that, have that feeling when God is demanding Job, answer me, you worm. But it doesn't have that, that uh, thrust or, or meaning when Job says, I'm going to inquire of you, I'm asking you, I, I beseech you. I, you know, he had an entirely different attitude. So Job, the type and shadow of who we are, after being crushed to powder, humbly continues to repent in dust and ashes. Verse 5, I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Wherefore, I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. Job saw a whirlwind, he heard a voice, but he says, my eye sees you. And dust and ashes is what we're composed of. From dust you are, Genesis, and under ashes, I mean ashes under the sole of your feet, is what our old man will become. There it is, Genesis 3.19, In the sweat of your face you'll eat bread, till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for dust you are. Not spirit you are, dust you are. You. And unto dust shall you return. In Ecclesiastes 3.18, which we read earlier. I'll just put verse 20 in there. All go into one place. All, animals and beasts and men, are of the dust, and all turn to dust again. Malachi 4.3 You, the new man, shall tread down the wicked, the old man, for they shall be ashes under the soles of your feet in the day that I shall do this, saith the Lord of hosts. We all want to think that we are going to be there in bodies of flesh, treading down physical ashes under our physical feet. No, this is the old man versus the new man, like all of the Bible. Now, many of the patriarchs and prophets of the Old Testament literally saw Yahweh. They ate with him, talked with him, and Jacob even, Jacob even wrestled with him. And, you know, I've written on this. There's plenty to be read about it, and it's already been written. And I'm sure there's plenty more that can be said. But when Moses asked to see God, he asked to see him in his glory. And the Lord said, no man can see me in my glory and live. Well, you and I can know and see God in his glory. But we can't live and do that. We've got to die to do that. But let's read Genesis 18, verse 1, for an example of where people did see the Lord who, while he was not in his glory. And the Lord, in the Hebrew word is Yahweh here, appeared unto him in the plains of Mamre as he sat in the tent in the heat of the day, tent door in the heat of the day. And he lifted up his eyes and looked, and lo, three men stood by him. And when he saw them, he ran to meet them from the tent door and bowed himself toward the ground. He didn't fall over on his back for uh, the sake of uh, many who today think that's what we do in the presence of God. And he said, Lord, if now I have found favor in your sight, pass not away, I pray thee, from your servant. Let a little water, I pray you, be fetched, and wash your feet, and rest yourselves under the tree. And I will fetch a morsel of bread, and comfort your hearts. After that you shall pass on. For therefore are you come to your servant. And they said, So do as you have said. And Abram hasted into the tent unto Sarah, and said, Make ready 
quickly three measures of fine meal, knead it, and make cakes upon the hearth. And Abraham ran unto the herd and fetched a calf, tender and good, and gave it to a young man. And he hasted to dress it. And he took butter and milk and the calf which he had dressed, and set it before them, and he stood by them under the tree, and they did eat. Now, you know, you say, that doesn't say that the Lord spoke to him. Well, here's a verse that does, same chapter. The Lord, Yahweh, said unto Abraham. Wherefore did Sarah laugh? Because he went on to tell Sarah that she was going to have a child in this same chapter. Saying, surely I, shall I surely bear a child who, which am old? And he says, this is what I referred to earlier in our discussion today. Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the time appointed, I will return unto you according to the time of life, and Sarah will have a son. When Jacob wrestled with the Lord, he afterwards said, I have seen God. Genesis 32, verse 20. Jacob called the name of the place Peniel. This is where he wrestled with God all night. For I have seen God face to face, and my life is preserved. And I'm saying all of this so that you can understand that we don't have any reason to think that after all God put Job through, and since the point of it all is to show us that we will come to see God, that there's no reason for us to believe that Job didn't actually see Yahweh as he says he did. My eye has seen you, just as many others did in the Old Testament. Of course, all these stories typify the spiritual light and sight that we're given and receive when we are judged of the Lord. Here's how you actually see the Lord. John 14, verses 7 through 9. <clears throat> if you had known me, you should have known my Father also. And from thenceforth, henceforth, you know him and have seen him. Can you say my eye has seen him? This is what Christ said to Philip. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it suffices us. Let us really see him, Father, or Christ, and, and, and we'll all be happy. Jesus said to him, Have I been so long time with you, and yet you have not known me? Philip, he that has seen me has seen the Father. And how say you then, Show us the Father. What a blessing that we have to know and see the Father when we come to know God and His Son. Job 42, verse 7. And it was so that after the Lord had spoken these words unto Job, the Lord said to Eliphaz the Temanite, My wrath is kindled against you and against your two friends, for you have not spoken of me the thing that is right, as my servant Job has. I pointed out earlier that Job had not been saying the thing that was right for very long, but the Lord acts like it's been going on for a while here when he's speaking to Eliphaz. Here we're told that Yahweh spoke to Job and to Eliphaz. The previous four chapters of the Lord verbally chastening Job and bringing Job to repentance for condemning his own maker and creator. Now we read it earlier. Shall he that contends with the Almighty instruct him? He that reproves God, let him answer it. And Job says, Behold, I am vile. What shall I answer? I'll lay my hand on my mouth. 
once I've spoken, but I will not answer, yea, twice, but I will proceed no further. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, I'll demand of you, will you disannul my judgment? Will you condemn me that you may be righteous? So obviously when God says to Eliphaz, for you've not spoken the thing that is right, as my servant Job has, he's referring to what Job spake of him after repenting of contending with, reproving, and condemning his Lord. And after Job confessed, I'm vile, what shall I answer you? I'll lay my hand on my mouth. Once I've spoken, but I'll answer no more. Yea, twice, and I'll proceed no further. Nevertheless, it's important that we realize that this whole story shows us, Job, as a type of God's few elect, who are simply the first to endure the seven vials of God's wrath being poured out upon the kingdom of the old man. Our first Adam, who is being judged first for the purpose of being first fruit pillars in the temple of God, through which all men will be brought to God. First Peter four seventeen is here's the uh, here's this schedule of events, the timeline. The time has come, right here, right now, that judgment must begin at the house of God. And if it first began at us, Peter actually calls himself the house of God. Who does he think he is? Well, you know, if you can't, if you can't own up to who you are, that's because you aren't. If it first begin at us, what will the end be of them that obey not the gospel of God? God could have simply told Eliphaz and his two friends to bring their offering to him. But that isn't what he does. He's telling us that he works through his elect to save mankind. That's why I told Eliphaz to go to Job. Here's what we're being told. Job, uh, Romans 11, verse 30 through 32. For as in time past, as you in time past have not believed God, Job didn't believe, believe God. He thought he did, but he didn't. In fact, he contended with him, demonstrates that. Yet have thou obtained mercy through their unbelief. Job's trial and test first was at the expense of Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar as types of our old man, of Job's old man. Even so have these also now not believed that through your mercy, Job is the Old Testament type of God's elect, they also may obtain mercy. For God has concluded them all in unbelief that he might have mercy upon all. All doesn't exclude the first fruits. All just includes the first fruits first. Here's the statement in same statement in the book of Revelation. Revelation three nine. Behold, I will make them of the synagogue of Satan, which say they are Jews, they say they're God's elect, they say they know God, and are not, but do lie. Job himself condemning God, you and me. When we were doing that, Behold, I will make them, our old man, to come and worship before your new man feet, and to know that I have loved you first as the first fruits. Now, this is the same story we have in the book of Genesis. Genesis 37, verses 5 through 10. Joseph dreamed a dream, told it to his brothers, and they hated him yet the more. And he said to them, Here I pray you this dream I've dreamed. For behold, we were binding sheaves in the field. And lo, my sheaf rose up. 
and also stood upright. And behold, your sheaf stood round about and made obeisance to my sheaf. And his brother said to him, Shall you indeed reign over us? Shall you indeed have dominion over us? That's what we all say to God when we're contending with, reproving, and condemning him. And they hated him yet the more for his dreams and for his words. Like the parable, in the parable they say, this man will not rule over us. And he dreamed yet another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I have dreamed a dream more. And behold, the sun and the moon and the eleven stars made obeisance to me. And he told it to his father and to his brothers. And his father rebuked him and said unto him, What is this dream you've dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come and bow down ourselves to, to thee to the earth? Now Joseph's brother, mother was dead at this time. Uh, Rachel had died in the birth of Benjamin years earlier. But Rachel will bow down to God's elect. Rachel will bow down to Christ. And that's what this whole thing is telling us. It's a type and a shadow of what will happen. And it literally, physically happened to Joseph's brothers. Those words proceeded out of the mouth of God, so it happened to Joseph's brothers. Joseph 40, Genesis 42, verse 6. Joseph was governor over the land, and he it was that sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed down themselves before him with their faces to the earth, just like in the dream. And then 43, verse 26. When Joseph came home, they brought him the present which was in their hand into the house and bowed themselves to him to the earth. So we must all do to Christ and to his Christ. Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar are but one more type and shadow of our old man, bowing down to our new man, the Christ. Job 42, verse 8. Therefore, take unto you now seven bullocks and seven rams, and go to my servant Job, and offer up for yourselves a burnt offering, and my servant Job shall pray for you. For him will I accept, lest I deal with you after your folly, in that you have not spoken of me, the thing which is right, like my servant Job. Now those seven bullocks and seven rams, the bullocks are out of the herd. That's an expensive offering. And they offered them to God through Job. When we speak the thing which is right of Christ, then we too will be the pillars through which others, will, our brothers and sisters in Adam will come to God. <coughs> Revelation 3.12 <coughs> He that overcomes will I make a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go no more out, and I will write upon him the name of my God, and the name of the city of my God, which is New Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven, from my God, and I will write upon him my new name. <clears throat> now, that's our study for today. We're going to stop right there at verse 12. But next week, if the Lord wills, we're going to learn more of how we ourselves are saved and of how we are used of God as saviors, according to Obadiah, the last verse of that one chapter book. <clears throat> verse 21.